Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is one of our bonus episodes that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's toe tag is The Hemingway Deception by T.J. O'Connor. All right, ready for chapter one? I get everything set up here in front of me. June 1st, midday, Central Park, Manhattan, New York. Deception is the sword of the cunning, a tool, a weapon. It is the strategy of a provocateur, a method to cause one's opponent to wreak havoc upon themselves while concealing one's true endgame. Other time, it's a mask used by the desperate for simple survival. It's an escape. Anna Karras knew about deception and provocation. She knew about strategy and survival too. She was a student of both with mixed results. Her entire life up to this moment had been about survival, often as the result of deception. Other times, she survived by sheer will and, most importantly, luck. Pain. A sharp phantom finger began a slow, agonizing trek along Anna's left side and across her belly. It followed the path lines of ugly scars, just as the blade had weeks before. She cringed and reflexively caressed her stomach to ease the discomfort, subconscious spasms reminding her of her near death at the hands of a predator. In a moment, it passed. It always did. She sighed and gazed over Central Park, focusing on the children playing in the distance, willing the pain into exile. It came less each day, some days only once or twice, and then only for a brief moment, a sign both the body and the mind were healing. Now, if only her memory would heal. Anna was 30, but had experienced a great deal more for her years, an adventurer by heart, a fighter by trade, and a survivor by choice. Her flowing auburn hair and big dark Latina eyes favored her Cuban father, her figure, curvaceous and full, was a gift from her mother's Greek heritage, with skin a rich almond that blended her dual heritage into an exotic, sensual tone. It had only been a week since she'd begun to feel pretty again. Her ordeal in the jungle had nearly taken her life and left her thin and withered. Slowly, she re regained enough weight to fill out her jeans and cotton blouses so they weren't too baggy. Her cheekbones and legs had lost their gaunt appearance. Only recently has she rekindled normalcy. For the past few weeks, she had convalesced along Central Park's paths and greens. With the love of a small abandoned child and her stray dog, she wasn't sure she would have even returned to New York. Still, she had, and every day made her stronger, less afraid, more ready to begin life again. It took nearly a month after waking in a nearby private hangar, bandaged and strapped to a gurney, to regain pieces of her former self. 
As she healed, haunting memories began to drift in her thoughts. Confused memories at first. Nightmares now. Wispy vignettes of pain and danger. Mama and Papa. The Jungle Caps. Colombia. Cabrera. Despite all that would happen to her, she wouldn't give up. As soon as her memories were clear and her body capable, she would return to Colombia and find her parents. She'd bring them home and help them rebuild their lives away from the jungle camps. Most importantly, bring them home to escape their pasts, all their pasts. Start life again, a simpler life, a saner life. I'll find you, Mama and Papa, she whispered to herself. I'll find both of you. A ball nearly too big for the thin dog's mouth rolled into the tall grass near a stand of hemlock trees beside the walking path. The scruffy-faced mixed breed tried desperately to follow it, but the leash reined him in until his master released the brake and allowed a few more feet of line. Lobo's doing good, isn't he? The little light-skinned, reddish-haired Latina called, struggling to control the three-legged dog now rutting in the grass for his ball. Don't you think so, Auntie Anna? Auntie was a faux title, a ruse to deflect unwanted questions. There was no blood between Sarah and her, no lineage, no history. They met at a dusty roadside gas station two months ago. Days later, they survived a horrific attack that left Lobo and Anna close to death. In their short time together, they'd formed a bond that Anna refused to relinquish. Sarah was alone in the world. So was Anna, nearly. Neither would be alone again. Not after Cabrera. Yes, Sarah, Lobo's doing very well. Anna caressed the scar along her belly, soothing the lingering discomfort. The knife attack had proven vicious and painful, but many of the wounds had been superficial. One was not. Luck and a stranger, just a faint image longed in her memory, had saved their lives. Now, each time her finger traced the thin red lines across her body, she prayed the scars would heed her caress and fade to nothing forever. In time, soon, one day. She looked down at Sarah and gripped the seven-year-old's hands to keep her from being yanked into the weeds by Lobo. You must control him. I'm trying. He's so strong. Sarah tugged on the leash and Lobo appeared in the tall weeds, ball in his mouth. He hobbled back onto the walking path, virtually immune to his handicap, wagging wildly. As Sarah beckoned him, he scampered on his remaining legs and wheezed a bit from the exertion. A dark scar, all but hidden in his fur, adorned his shoulder where his left front leg should be. A bullet had shattered the leg as he protected Sarah from Anna's assailant. A second bullet had glanced off his chest and left only torn muscle and flesh. The dog was saved by hasty aim. Like Anna, he had survived for two reasons, Sarah and the stranger. Before they'd found the dog wandering Cabrera streets, he'd survived alone for who know how long. Sarah instantly adopted him, just as Anna had her. His love for the girl had carried him through the attack and his recovery. Now, like Anna, walking in the park, Lobo was once again playing ball. Anna giggled as Lobo refused to return the ball to Sarah. Who had saved them in Colombia? She didn't know. She couldn't remember. Just a dark silhouette standing above her, a soft, kind voice, a gentle hand on hers, the compassion to save Lobo. Anna? A voice shook her from her thoughts. 
She turned to see a gray-haired, stunning woman approaching along the path. Her maternal grandmother, Yaya Papi, was still beautiful at 75. Her thoughtful, strong character was as young as a woman half her age. Papi was a Yaya, a grandmother, a Greek badge of honor. You were somewhere just then, remembering something, Papi asked. Anything new? Not really, Yaya. Now and then a flash of memory, but nothing else. The void still unnerved her. I wish there was more. I have so many questions. You should never have gone there, Poppy's face. Poppy faced her squarely. He is not worth it. You were nearly killed. Again. Stop it, Yaya. I was there searching for Mama and Papa. Your father is trouble. And Mama? Yes, Irina. Time will tell, I suppose. Sadness filled Poppy's face. Your father took her from me years ago. She made her choices then. I pray things will be different for you. That is why your grandfather took care of you before he died, Anna. He wanted you to be different. And I'm disappointing him. Anna looked away as regret washed over her. She'd never met Theo Karras, a successful New York restaurateur. He died a year before Anna made her first trip to Queens to meet him and Poppy. But Theo had loved her nonetheless. They left her a sizable trust that paid her travel to and from Queens in the summer and for her college education. Even after graduating, there was still enough principal remaining to live on for the next few years. She would soon have to find employment and save some for Sarah's future education. Your grandfather would love you no matter what, as I have, just as I love Irina no matter what. I have to find them, Yaya Papi. It troubled her how much hate Poppy held toward her father. If I hadn't gone looking for them, I would never have found Sarah. And who would have rescued her? Who would be her family now? Poppy raised a finger to make a point, but lowered it quickly. Yes, Sarah is a godsend. I wish I could thank whoever saved you all. Anna agreed. If you remember anything more, you will tell me, won't you? Of course, even with your scolding. Poppy changed the subject and looked down at Sarah, trying to pry the ball from Lobo's mouth. Sarah, what would you like to do now? Ice cream. She gave the ball. She gave up the ball with a big spreading smile. Lobo needs some too. Can we? Lobo needs ice cream? Anna knelt and pulled Sarah to her, kissing her cheeks until she giggled and pulled away. Are you trying to bribe him for his ball? Sarah shrugged. Maybe. I need ice cream too, Poppy said. Ice cream is therapeutic. Sarah beamed. Loba's hot, Auntie Anna. Running on three legs makes him need ice cream. Ice cream is temaputic. <laughs> yes, it is, Kukla. Anna released her to Poppy. There's a nice stand just over the hill. I like when you call me Kukla, Auntie Anna. Sarah giggled. I never had a nickname before. Then her eyes softened and her voice fell to a whisper. But I want a real last name, too. Anna pulled her close again. You are a Karis now, Sarah, and I am your auntie. Thank you, Auntie Anna. Sarah clutched her tightly with one arm, squeezing Poppy's hand with the other. I love you both. Anna basked in the child's affection. If only she shared this love with her own mama, even once, perhaps her life would have been different somehow. Instead, she'd had only bitter memories and wishes. But she had Sarah now, 
and that was worth the pain she endured. Giving you our name is a sign of love, Sarah, as is giving you the nickname Kuglamwa, my doll, Poppy said. All the women in my family had nicknames. Sarah turned her eyes up to Anna. What was yours, Auntie Anna? Um, I don't recall. Padidi Avalos, Poppy said with a wink. It means devil child. Because she was bad a lot, Yaya Poppy? Sarah asked, when she was young like me? The happiness drained from Poppy's face. I didn't see Antiana very much when she was your age, Sarah. Not very much at all. I was sometimes bad. Anna shot a cautionary glance at Poppy, but said to Sarah, All right, maybe a lot. Sarah's face scrunched up. Kukla is Greece? It's Greek, Sarah, Poppy said. We are all Greek in this family. But I'm, uh, Sarah wrinkled her nose. Latin, Latina, Latina, Anna said. You are part Colombian and part American, I think. I am part Latina too. My mama is Greek American. My papa is Cuban. Greek? Cuban? Sarah's face showed concern. Antiana, where are your mama and papa? I don't know. Anna knelt to answer her. They got lost in Colombia, Sarah. I went looking for them. That is how I found you. I wish my mama and papa were just lost. Sarah's face saddened and her eyes glistened with sudden tears. Not dead. The words brought tears to Anna's eyes, too. For a long moment, she hugged Sarah tightly. I know, little one. Perhaps, just perhaps, that is why I found you. Because we are the same. And we are together. Sarah pulled back from Anna, and a big, warm smile blossomed on her face. I'm so glad you found me, Auntie Anna. I love you. I love you, too. Enough of this sad talk, Poppy said. Greek, Cuban, Colombian, we are all Americans. Anna took Lobo's leash. I'll take the beast. Get your ice cream. Ice cream, ice cream, Sarah chanted. Let's go. As they walked off, Sarah chanted some Greek rhyme Poppy was teaching her. A few steps later, she turned, smiled, and waved back at Anna. Then she skipped out of sight over a knoll on the path a hundred feet away. Anna had many happy memories of skipping and singing in this park alongside Poppy. Each summer, after her ninth birthday, she returned from Columbia to Queens every year to visit. Poppy crammed nine months of absences into each summer. There were picnics in the park, trips to museums, theater, everything completely opposite of the hot, dangerous life she had in the Colombian jungle. Those few weeks each year fused them together, stronger than any other traditional family could. Come, Lobo. Anna tried to pull him from the tall grass, but he wouldn't budge. Lobo, come here. Sarah will be back soon, I promise. The dog went rigid. His tail lowered and his teeth bared. This was not the angst from Sarah leaving. It was something else someone else. Three men crested the knoll where Sarah and Poppy had just passed. They stopped and, for a few moments, looked behind them down the path towards Sarah and Poppy. Finally, they turned and walked toward her. The three walked in a staggered line. Two square-framed Latinos walked front and rear, both wearing suits and dark sunglasses. Between them was a heavier Latino, a robust man, in khaki slacks, a dark button-down dress shirt, and a wide-brimmed Panama hat. That man? Her belly scars tingled. 
Panama hat wore large aviator sunglasses that, along with the hat sitting low on his brow, helped obscure part of his face. He stopped abruptly at the path interception section a few yards from where she sat. She, he glanced around and spoke quietly to the man ahead of him. His escort stopped in unison, holding their positions, though fixed in place by some unseen barricade surrounding them. Panama Hat looked at Anna, spoke again to his cohorts, laughed, and continued forward. A shiver unsettled her. Icy fingers gripped her spine and began climbing upward, chilling her body and nagging her breath. What was it about him? Something familiar, disturbing. Her scars suddenly burned and sent hot needles deep inside her soul. These men? Was it... was it them? They grew closer. Lobo moved beside Anna and lowered into a protective crouch. He snarled through bared teeth. He quivered, ready for battle. No, Lobo, it's all right. Was it? The dog trembled, rose and crouched, stepped forward and retreated, refusing to obey her commands. His eyes locked on the large man. What a silly dog, Panama Hat said to her as they came closer. He manages on three legs? He does quite fine. Heat raced through her as the man's voice sent out alarms. Do I know you? I don't know, he cocked his head. Do you? I'm, I'm unsure. Something about him was too familiar, something threatening and dark, a voice and image that hovered just beyond her memory, taunting her. You're familiar. Yes, I think. You're mistaken, he gestured to his men and they moved on. As they passed on the far side of the path, Panama Hat turned and glared at Lobo. He gave Anna a thin, cynical grin as he removed his sunglasses and looked squarely at her. Their eyes met. Fire. Pain. No. 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 A storm exploded and a wave of memories were unleashed. Lightning erupted in her thoughts. Images swirled and combined like a tornado touching down. A recollection. A man standing over her as she lay on her back, her body enveloped in pain. The searing stab of steel penetrated her side. Punches, kicks, he f she felt life draining from her belly. Darkness tried to, calm, to claim her as the cold enveloped her. Voices and shapes whirled and settled into firm memories. The man standing over her, he knew her. He ordered someone to finish her as he watched her cut and beaten. That man? Panama hat. No, Anna, it, could, it, could it be? He was here watching her from the walking path 20 feet away, here? Alarm bells clanged as the past collided with the present. She started to rise from the bench but stopped, dizzy and uncertain. She pulled Lobo close against her legs and held his collar. Her breath refused to come. Her scars turned into trails of fire. No, not him. Not, not here. How? Panama Hat continued to stare, wearing a thin, taunting grin. He spoke to his men. They turned and stared as well. She focused only on him, trying to find something to prove that he was not her nightmare. Another wave of nausea gripped her. Nine, nine, nine. A cluster of dark reddish scars. The pattern of the number nine disfigured his right cheek a grotesque blemish that sent black spots across her eyes and weakened her to a near faint. Nine, nine, nine. Colonel Vergara, he was here. 
9999. Her scars burned so hot that now she grabbed her side, bent forward, and muffled a cry. Like dawn breaking, the dark shroud that had cloaked her thoughts lifted, floated away. Another rush of thoughts commenced. Faces and words, deeds and misdeeds, angst and terror. Columbia, Cabrera, Colonel Vogera. The man had nearly killed her. Nine, nine, nine. All right, so that was the first chapter of the Hemingway Deception. So it was released from Suspense Books and promoted by Partners in Crime Tours. It's available from Amazon and other book retailers. Links are in the show notes. So let's learn a little bit about the author, T.J. O'Connor. Uh, T.J. is the author of The Hemingway Deception, Dying with the Secret, that's pending publication, The Consultant, and Four Paranormal Murder Mysteries. I'll have to look them up. I love paranormal murder. Okay, that sounded bad. T.J. is an international security consultant specializing in anti-terrorism, investigations, and threat analysis, life experiences that drive his novels. With his former life as a government agent and years as a consultant, he has lived and worked around the world in places like Greece, Turkey, Italy, Germany, the, the UK, and throughout the Americas, among others. T.J. is a Harley Davidson pilot, a man about dogs, and a lover of adventure, cooking, and good spirits, both kinds. He was raised in New York's Hudson Valley and lives with his wife and Labrador companions in Virginia, where they raised five children who are supplying a growing tribe of grams. So let's hear my review. Okay, so The Hemingway Deception is a thriller. Hemingway, no one knows who he is or what he can do, only that he is the ultimate prize. The key lies with Dr. Mantilla, who some label a saint and others a gorilla. Anna Karras Mantilla survived her upbringing in the jungles of Colombia to establish a normal life in Queens. Now her missionary parents have gone missing, and saving them means embracing everything she fought to escape. Train does the dirty work that needs to be done. To protect his Washington insider bosses, he has to find Mantilla, then Hemingway, to put a permanent end to their plans. Catalina Reyes is a Cuban spy who has lost her husband and her direction. Desperation drives her to take on this mission where succeed or die are the only outcomes, and Dr. Mantilla is her guide. Luke Brennan is NYPD, working to make sense of the mess that Karis and Train leave in their wake. Everyone keeps telling him to let this one go, right, like he's going to listen. Bottom line, The Hemingway Deception is for you if you like multi-hero stories where everyone is out for themselves for a damn good reason, and the stakes are so high that losing means war. Okay, strengths of the story. This book has several strengths. Uh, Let's start with motivation. As I said, there are several heroes in this book, and each are busting their butts to win. O'Connor does an excellent job of creating motivations for the heroes that are deep, personable, personal and relatable. I guess it could be personable and relate. That doesn't work. Next on the strengths is the, oh my God, the tension. 
several scenes I had to read through my fingers. Knowing that O'Connor works professionally in anti-terrorism and that he draws from real-life experiences, well, it amped up the tension for me and negated any certainty that any character was going to walk out of any situation alive. Next, I respected, if not liked, all of the main characters in the book. By the end, I felt like I had connected to them, and even if I didn't like them, I respected them. I got why they were doing what they did. They were heroes in their own stories, even if their stories weren't necessarily this one. So where did this story fall short of ideal? I have very few criticisms of this. Um, you know, I often will think about a book for days after I finish reading it as I just sort of puzzle through or kind of reverse engineer the puzzle, and, and I really didn't find big logic gaps. The storylines were consistent within themselves and between each other. I mean, one character pulled a Lazarus, which earned an eye roll from me, and I didn't love some of the final wrap-up, but I truly think that those were my personal preferences and were not a reflection on the strength of the writing. Of all the chapters in this book, the one I read to you was probably my least favorite. It was largely backstory, and it was not really representative of the rest of the book's pacing or action. Chapter one, you know, you're just, you're in first gear, you're just getting rolling. Chapters two and three, you're in second gear, you're picking up speed, but then from there on out with this book, you are flying by the seat of your pants. Um, this really is a fast-paced thriller. There's tons of action in it. Um, there's tons of, you didn't see that coming. So thriller readers, this one is for you. Um, this was promoted by Partners in Crime Tours, and they represent a network of over 300 bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, Partners in Crime offer virtual book tour services for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out. Partners in Crime prides itself on its tailored packages for authors with the personal touch from their tour coordinators, and I personally attest to their personal touch. I have uh, been awed by the things that these ladies can do. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Join us next week for Mysteries to Die For. Episode 3 is This Never Happened to Wolfman Jack by Nikki Knight. DJ Jay Jordan is working alone, spinning tunes for lonely hearts on a Saturday night. When company arrives, it isn't her yoga buddies, but a bass blast from the past with a gun. Time is running out. If Jay can't solve this cold case, she may just have to resort to Jumpin' Jack Flash. And that wraps up this toe tag. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>